0: to the number Station. Five, three, five, six, Hello and welcome back. Let me start off by apologizing. I missed uh, posting an episode last month. I've been applying to PhD programs, and um, and it was a really intense process uh, putting together all those applications. So today I want to talk about something that's been on my mind lately, In the readings that I've been doing about. The practice of intelligence. I've been seeing a pattern of uh, trust, issues of trust coming up over and over in different contexts. And so I want to offer a sort of introduction, I guess, to those uh, issues of trust and intelligence, which I think are are really interesting to show specific contexts where trust is uh, really of critical importance. It's also something I've just been thinking about um, in a more mystical way I suppose and I'll get into that later. I think I'm going to begin with talking about the security clearance process. It's something I haven't experienced of course, but it's uh so you know, something I've been really super interested in. In brief, the idea is that in any intelligence organization or you know, in any job where the job requires access to classified information, Uh, people have to go through this security clearance process in order to check them out and decide if um, if uh, the government wants to give them access to a certain you know level of restricted information and information that gets restricted is information whose exposure has the potential to to do damage to the nation my Impression is that a significant part of this is uh sources and methods um, meaning um sources meaning the sources of information, often human sources uh the identities of individuals who are supplying information to to an agency often at great danger to themselves, and the methods you know the methods by which information is collected because if that was if that were revealed the people whose information is being collected if they knew how if they knew the methods through which it was happening they would be able to you know uh prevent it in any case the important point is that um there is information that is uh classified it's uh distribution is restricted and um, in order to get access to that information you have to go through this clearance process and so the process of how that's gone about has been you know something that I'm super interested in how do they determine who um, who to trust and um, the the uh, process looks like you, you first you fill out a form and this is a uh, a form that's 127 pages long and it goes through a lot of your just basic um information and then this goes to an investigator who um opens an investigation into the person now ultimately they say that um a person's suitability is determined based on a uh overall common sense judgment of the uh person as a whole. Um but there are you know extensive guidelines and there's a list of thirteen um thirteen guidelines in particular that um they look at and uh, I'm drawing this from a document called um it's the intelligence community policy guidance number seven oh four point two and and the title of the, the document is Personnel Security Adjudicative Guidelines for Determining Eligibility for Access to Sensitive, Compartmented Information and Other Controlled Access Program Information. So um, so this has the list of uh, you know it's I'm you know it, it's a, it's a twenty page document, but I'm just pulling out this uh, list of thirteen guidelines just to give a sense of what they're looking at they're looking at uh allegiance to the united states um, any foreign influence uh any foreign preference they're looking they're looking at the person's uh they're looking at sexual behavior personal conduct financial considerations which is a, a big one that you're not in debt over your head and that you pay your bills on time i think this is the number one reason uh Overwhelmingly, Number one, maybe 80% of uh, rejections, I think, are based on financial considerations. I'm just ballparking that, but I think that those are uh, uh, what I've heard are pretty um, is, is a fairly uh, accurate, a fairly accurate number. They're looking at alcohol consumption, drug involvement. Uh, I mean, involvement, meaning both uh, use or, um, you know, much more seriously, sale or transportation or that kind of stuff, drug involvement, psychological conditions, uh, criminal conduct, have you ever been arrested, Uh, handling protected information, outside activities, that's pretty vague, not sure what that means, and uh, use of information technology systems. That's another big one that um, it is illegal to download um, copyrighted music, for example. And this is a big one, you know, that uh, um, they're looking to see: is this a law-abiding person? And um, and so your involvement in use of computers for that kind of activity or any other kinds of uh, illegal activities is uh, the uh, one of those uh, guidelines for um, how they're assessing the person and. My, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk in here. I found the sexual behavior one especially interesting. But um, really, what they're looking for is they're looking to make sure that, um, first of all, that you you know don't have any active involvement in groups that wish to overthrow the U.S. government through violence. That the person isn't involved in committing any major crimes. That they're not hiding anything serious. For example. Uh, cheating on a spouse is uh, a big one because uh, not because of the morality but because it leaves uh, the person vulnerable to blackmail Uh, so that's one of the big things that they're looking at is uh, are there any um, uh, vulnerabilities to blackmail for example if you're uh, uh, you know if you secretly have a second family or if you uh, um, had like debt that was so major that that it might be attractive to consider an offer of money to betray your country or if you're putting yourself in high risk situations for example by getting blackout drunk every weekend or taking drugs or um putting in your, yourself in any situations where you might you know for example just get a little too talkative this reminds me of uh uh the the russian girl that was here in the us recently marina marina maria butina she uh there are all these stories in the newspapers about how she was infamous for getting really drunk and um bragging that she was a russian spy and so after you fill out this form and they've they've you know um begun their investigation the person will be brought in to do a polygraph exam but in any case i just think it's really interesting just thinking about the hiring you know the hiring process the hiring and security clearance process of deciding you know which of the which employees can and should be entrusted with access to classified information that's uh, they're putting an enormous amount of trust into their cleared workforce hence so the security clearance process is supposed to be um, the first way that classified information is protected. The second area that I'm going to talk about where trust is fundamental to uh, intelligence operations is in the recruitment and management of uh, agents or assets better known as spies. Um, And I'm going to draw for this segment on um, a book on a book, but also especially uh, a newsletter, an issue of a newsletter by, um, by a guy named Robin Dreek, D-R-E-E-K-E. And so who this guy is, he is Robin Dreek. So, I mean, he's got YouTube videos all over the place um, and he, he seems to speak pretty uh, widely about uh, trust building. But um, so Robin Dreek, he joined the FBI in 1997 as a behaviorist. And his profile says he went on to formally serve as the head of the elite behavioral analysis program of the FBI's counterintelligence division. So his background with the FBI is in the counterintelligence division. The The newsletter issue that I'm talking about titled how to recruit a spy it starts off he says a common question i get asked is how do you recruit a spy so apparently a lot of people think that he's the person to go to to ask that question now the big issue of trust in this context of recruiting and working with foreign agents is um, you need to be able to trust that the information that they're giving you is true to the best of their knowledge that they're not intentionally feeding you um false information or um, only pretending to have been persuaded by your efforts to recruit them, while in reality they're actually still working for the uh, target country, either feeding you false information or even just trying to um, learn about your intelligence organization and um, obtain useful information, for example, about sources and methods that, that they can turn around and um, reveal to the intelligence organizations in the countries that you're trying to spy on. And another reason that trust is an issue in this context is um, in a lot of uh, as I touched on earlier, one of the big incentives that uh, intelligence organizations have to offer potential recruits, um, potential spies to persuade them to work with them is money. And so if you're offering people money, there's a high likelihood that's even in some areas of the world of virtual certainty that you're going to have people coming to you and offering you to sell information that is just completely made up just because they want the money. They might not be uh, working for the other side, but they just heard that you've got money to give away for information, and so they're trying to persuade you that um, they have information so that you'll give them money. So those are some of the trust issues that come up. And the stakes can be very, very, very high. If you put your trust in the wrong person, um, it might not just be that uh, secrets are revealed, but uh, people could die, you know. Lives are genuinely on the line. And um, so knowing that you're putting your trust in the right individuals is absolutely critical. So in this newsletter... Robin starts off talking about you know the the kinds of um assets that uh they might be interested in recruiting for example might be diplomats or not diplomats but uh uh foreign intelligence officers who were uh disguised as diplomats who were pretending to be diplomats and uh, uh placed in places like the UN or uh embassies and these are people who are not interested in you know, being recruited to spy. Robin saying it's illegal for the FBI to initiate contact with any of these uh, people outside of official diplomatic channels, and so they have very little motivation to cooperate with this, um, with the proposal. You know that uh, um, that the domestic intelligence officer is wanting to approach them with. So he says, how do you you recruit a spy then? He says, you don't. The answer is you don't. You simply identify their priorities, offer resources, and develop trust. Okay, so he says something that I think is absolutely critical here. He says, humans always act in what we think is our own best interests, particularly in the areas of safety, security, and prosperity for ourselves and our families. I'm saying that that's key because it's uh, it's an observation that reverberates on multiple registers here where uh, we're not just talking about this particular situation, but also, um, for example, we're going to get to, uh, in a moment, the, the context of uh, international intelligence cooperation agreements. You know, so on, on multiple reg- registers, there's this issue of um, people doing what they think is in their best interest. And that being, you know, one of the primary motivators for um, almost all kinds of decision-making. And and so Robin says, you know, once somebody shared this insight with him, he said, from that realization forward, my job became simple to understand. All I had to do was to discover which foreign operatives had priorities that aligned with mine and the product I was offering. So that's very uh, interesting and in its uh, insight into you know, how you recruit a spy as the, um, newsletter promises to reveal, but, um, it's not quite yet about trust and trust building, which is also critical to this, um, the people on both sides of this relationship need to be able to, uh, um, have some pretty serious trust in each other. And so how do you build that? It's a big, uh, um, it's, it's a huge concern in this context. And so he offers four points about trust building. I mean, even before setting out those points, he says, you know, first of all, you, you ensure you're providing a resource that is uh, in in terms of their priorities. I suppose ensure, make sure you're providing something that aligns with their own interests and then once you have um, started from that point he says you build trust through these four ways you seek their thoughts and opinions speak in terms of their priorities validate them in their thoughts without judging and empower them with choices and he also adds that you need to be you need to do these things without making any effort of manipulation because if you're just trying to manipulate someone they're going to be able to tell you have to be honest and what i hear in him um what i hear in these four points seeking the other person's that you're seeking your partner's thoughts and opinions speaking in terms of their priorities offering validation empowering them with choices um it, it really kind of this can be boiled down into keeping the focus on the other person on them and What I would extrapolate from that is that um, if you do this, it gives the impression that you are interested in them, that you care about them. And that is what is going to start to build. I mean, that's what's going to initiate that relationship of trust. I want to move a little bit deeper into this, though. And so I'm going to turn to um, an article on this subject. I'm not going to bother... Uh, with a bunch of citations because I don't think uh, anyone finds it interesting but but the subject we're talking about at the moment how do you make sure how do you, you know how do you know that you can trust the person to give you um, good information and to uh, uh, just that they really are who they claim to be uh, that process of uh, vetting someone is called um, asset validation and the asset validation process it begins by just verifying that the potential agent is really who he claims to be, which is something that can be easy or difficult depending on the context. For example, if someone is claiming to have access to secret information, that might be something that might be a little more difficult to verify. And then the next part of validating the asset is uh, understanding their motivation. It sounds like they're talking about the situation where someone is approaching them and saying, you know, I would like to offer you to be in this kind of a relationship. Like that's that's the situation where you would need to uh, understand uh, why they have um, developed this desire to commit espionage. And in the professional context, there are a, there's a team of people involved in doing this. It's not just one person's opinion, but um, but it's a collaborative project. And then the next step is when the uh, agent, also known as a spy, uh, starts providing information which uh, is considered valuable, then they set about determining if that information makes sense, if it's accurate, and if it's valuable. You know, and there's a long list of questions in this article I'm looking at about the kinds of questions that would be asked about the information, uh, you know, if it's a document, who wrote it, why did they write it, who was it written for? You know, this it's a long there's a long list of potential questions that can be asked to to uh, um to, to just to see if this if the information that's being provided makes sense and if it's uh, genuine. And so that to me sounds a little bit like the process we were just talking about of uh, the security clearance investigation. Something very similar is happening in this context of just an investigation, an investigation of a person and the information that they're providing you i hope god willing i'm going to take this someplace really cool by the end of this episode but uh i don't want to jinx it but i hope you'll stick with me and i hope you guys find this interesting but really in the end what it comes down to is that um the trust is something that's built over time that uh In either in whatever context the investigators are doing everything they can to um, to either validate or disprove information that's being offered to understand motivations, uh, just to get a sense of who they're talking to. But it really, the real trust in the. Um, in the context that I'm speaking about at this moment of the uh, recruitment of foreign agents, the real trust is built over time as that person continues repeatedly to um, provide information that is uh, of high value and, um, and is true. And I think that that's something that's really super interesting about the big picture here, that the way that you... Build trust, which, as I understand it, as I am understanding it in my own like definition that I just made up for myself, um, not just this moment, but you know, as I've been thinking about this, is um, trust is about predicting a person's future behavior, specifically whether the person is going to uh, do something harmful to you in the future, or what the likelihood is intentionally unintentionally but especially intentionally all right now the third context i'm just going to talk about it very briefly i think the first two ones the security clearance and the recruitment of spies those were kind of much more sexy um subjects so um you know international intelligence liaison is not quite as sexy but I do think it's just as interesting and especially because it's a much larger scale and it's not um my impression is that it isn't as that it's more organizational than personal you know it's it doesn't have the uh um the same personal investment I don't know if that's accurate but um but it is a little bit more impersonal just by being just by involving large groups and I think that that does reflect back on the personal situations in interesting ways. But uh, but still, I'm just gonna go through this one pretty briefly because uh, I think it can get boring really easily. Okay, so about uh, another week has passed since I recorded the first half of the, or so of this episode. Um, I just had to finish up more applications and um, now I'm 100% done. It was so hard. And I'm so glad it's over. I'm going to try and finish this up today and get it posted in time for the new year, which enters in less than 12 hours. <clears throat> so where we had left off was about international intelligence sharing alliances, the issue of trust in international intelligence sharing alliances one of the themes that comes up over and over and over in intelligence history i'm sure it continues to the present day both within you know internally within nations and also um internationally is uh the issue of competitiveness um within the u.s for example that's this is competitiveness between um different intelligence agencies uh, this the same situation um, was true in Australia uh, and in both situations it was there was a uh, major terrorist attack that uh, gave the energy to those energies to uh, gave the energy to those agencies to overcome their differences and focus on um, cooperating in order to um, address a common threat but the same also holds true internationally that even nations that are allies the intelligence uh, services of of the respective nations still have a lot of resistance uh, to overcome to uh, sharing intelligence which is often you know very closely guarded for various reasons if you um, part, in part it's about you know, showing your cards so that other people know what you know, but also uh by showing what you know you also show what you don't know, which can be just as uh information that's just as valuable. And the the first classic moment where this um where two, you know, Western nations uh, overcame this and kind of initiated the um the intelligence sharing agreements that would become what's today called the five Eyes, five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, which is an international uh, intelligence-sharing agreement between the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. Um, those, those are the five members of the uh, Five Eyes Intelligence-Sharing Alliance. The first classic, um, uh, you know, uh, in, intelligence-sharing agreement that initiated that that phenomenon that alliance was um world war Two, and and the challenges that the united states and the uk were both facing uh breaking german codes and um you know basically what allowed them to overcome their resistance to sharing uh the information they had with each other was that they needed both of them needed each other's help and so that uh um, UK USA agreement you know an actual uh, legal document that uh, formed the kind of the background back, backbone for the uh, Five Eyes Intelligence community that that uh, quickly grew out of it um, uh, that was a situation that the the US and, and UK intelligence sharing agreements and um five eyes more generally that was the the situation that they that that uh, um intelligence sharing um, alliance emerged from but even you know continuing today trust is still uh, a big issue in these alliances and i just right off the top of my head there are two uh very recent um examples that just uh jump to mind of why you know trust is uh remains an issue even today among the five eyes alliance uh who have been sharing intelligence for more than half a century um you know the issue of trust is like you know like i've been saying throughout this episode the issue of trust is about can i trust this person isn't going to do anything that's going to hurt me it's not an issue of like do i i mean like i'm I'm personalizing it but like um it's valuable, you know, I think a valuable metaphor for understanding the process that uh, uh, if you're imagining it's a person, it's it's not like a question of, do I like this person? Do I think that this is a good person? And, And it's not even about, do I believe that they sincerely intend not to do anything that's going to hurt me? Really, like, it's to some degree a much more practical issue of Is their security up to speed that there's not going to be a leak, that they're not going to be penetrated, you know, by um, hostile adversaries who want to get out the information that is being shared? How well are they vetting their employees, you know, Uh, those kinds of issues of trust. Uh, I mean, it almost seems to me like trust might not even be the best word for it, that Clearance even seems like a better um, a better term, just like in the sense of can it be verified that their you know security and practices are adequate to protect the information that's being shared? So the two examples that uh, uh, are from recent history that just leaped to my mind one of them uh, there was very recently a um, employee in the Canadian um intelligence services who was exposed i believe is as a, uh, to be spying for China, and it was all over the American newspapers within a matter of days asking, you know, did this put the information that you know u s intelligence uh at risk?' And the other, you know, members of the Five Eyes Alliance was the information that was being shared uh, through Five Eyes uh, compromised. I mean, obviously, you know, there was a the potential for compromise, but, um, you know, were the other member nations of the Alliance affected by this, um, by this spy in the Canadian intelligence service? and then the other major example that jumps to mind is that uh in the US you know this is uh 2019 that i'm saying this for the next uh 12 hours it's 2019 and our president um has repeatedly over the past 3 years that he's been president um exposed uh sensitive and uh classified information to uh both to the press and to adversaries such as Russia um and in most cases it's u.s intelligence that the president has the right to um to declassify but there was at least one instance where it wasn't u.s intelligence that was exposed it was uh israeli intelligence that the u.s president shared with um vladimir putin and again the main subject of this um episode is about trust it's not so much about um you know i'm not quite as interested in specific incidents and um but just like those general ideas of why trust is so important in an intelligence sharing relationship the definition of what is of what information is classified is um that this information has the potential to harm the nation if it were exposed like by definition that's what information becomes classified and so sharing that with um, people outside of your uh, nation gives them theoretically the power to harm you so trust is, is, is just a you know fundamental element of that practice at multiple registers from the employees you know that you're hiring to offer security clearances as we, start, as we talked about earlier um, on up to you know the f- foreign partners with whom you share information trust is um, a central element of those relationships um, you know at every level at every register from top to bottom So now I want to transition into some of the more kind of experimental or philosophical areas of uh, how I've been thinking about this and why I think it's so interesting and relevant to the spirit of this podcast. I I don't really believe that the concept of Illuminati has much value, even as a metaphor, and uh, especially because of uh, the life that it's taken on on the internet. I did have one really fun episode earlier where I talked about Madonna and the Illuminati. That one's fun. But every once in a while you might see, you know, when people are first introducing the uh, the idea or, or defining, you know, what Illuminati means, you might hear emphasis about um, the name's, you know, roots in, the name's roots in, in words that have to do with light illumination, uh, enlightenment. The Illuminati are, you know, supposedly the uh, enlightened ones. And this is a word, enlightenment, that uh, I've, um, engaged with now for 20 years or more. It's an important con- concept in Tibetan Buddhism in particular. As you probably know, the Buddha, you know, gained enlightenment under the Bodhi tree in Gaya. Some, I don't know, 5000 years ago 3000 years ago and so it's a term that you hear used very uh frequently and you might get the sense that enlightenment whatever it is it's something super important without really necessarily understanding what it means it's just this word that means something super 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 good and i'm sure when i first encountered this idea you know i had the impression that Enlightenment was the ultimate goal and satisfaction of the longing everyone has inside them towards uh, happiness. But not just towards happiness, it also has some close relationship with uh, pleasure. I certainly had this idea at the at the beginning that enlightenment means this uh, basically the awakening of the bliss body uh which I understood to be like you, everybody has several layers of uh uh increasingly subtle aspects of themselves which uh could can, can can be referred to as body uh this is especially I think uh, well articulated in Hinduism where the physical body is known as the food body because it is literally produced out of the uh, physical material that you uh, consume. So your physical body is your food body and then you have uh, layers of uh, bodies beyond that. Uh, the, The subtle body I believe is made primarily of emotions and then there's a, a level of intellect where um where you have a sort of mental body and i imagined that there was a potential uh, unrealized or unawakened body perhaps like the idea that you have these energy centers along your spine and that uh there's In the same way that, uh, in, in the experience, the biological experience of sexual maturity at puberty, uh, there is a new energy center that opens that wasn't active before, at least not in the same manifest way. In the same, comparable to that, there is another, uh, body, the bliss body, which, uh, we still have in potential that is not awakened and i imagined enlightenment to be the awakening of that bliss body so that after enlightenment for the rest of eternity you just walk around uh in the state of bliss um my more recent you know thinking about it the idea 20 years later and this is also um this isn't the product of my own um speculation but i have come to you know develop new ideas about what the word means based on some very particular uh memorable comments that i've heard gurus and um um buddhist lamas perhaps even the buddha i'll have to think about and and, uh, you know as it comes up in this uh uh monolog I'll I'll share with you the exact, the precise sources, but like my new definition is coming from some very memorable comments that I've heard that have led me to, you know, believe that the gurus and lamas are using the word enlightenment in a way that is actually, for me, surprisingly similar to, um, the way the word was used in the 18th century with, you know, the big European Enlightenment um, where there was this explosion of, um, you know, scientific rationalism and the, the emphasis on reason that happened in Europe, the West generally. I've started to develop this impression that, you know, the people who I consider enlightened beings use the word enlightenment in a way that's surprisingly similar to, um, to that sort of traditional early modern, is it early modern or to that traditional modern usage of the, uh, of the term in the West. And it's worth also interjecting that the root of the word for Buddha in, um, Sanskrit means uh, intellect. And I'll also take a moment to, you know, tie this back and point out that in this sense of the word, enlightenment actually has a lot to do with um, the intelligence community in the sense of um, the overlap between the focus on information, information and knowledge, I've heard the uh, process of intelligence analysis, like um, without really getting too much into it, just to like put it out there, the the, the difference between information and intelligence. Uh, you know, intelligence is information that has gone through the process of intelligence analysis. And I've heard that process referred to as, you know, turning information into knowledge. And I, I find that really super interesting. And um, I hope, you know, And I hope that that kind of makes it somewhat more obvious where the bridge is between the proper intelligence community and uh, the community of enlightened beings who might somewhat misleadingly be referred to as uh, Illuminati, enlightened, and the enlightened ones. In this sense of the word enlightened ones they are people you are enlightened if you know something and usually something very specific um to be to be enlightened in the sense is that there's something very specific that you know you know now perhaps the most recognizable symbol or perhaps the only uh symbol that's really associated with the uh Uh, quote-unquote Illuminati is the eye in the triangle. I believe that I did mention um, in a previous episode that I was surprised to learn that this symbol was associated with the uh, British intelligence community. Let me find the book real quick, and I will give the exact source. okay that wasn't too bad um finding a book in my world can be not an easy task sometimes but this one wasn't too bad to find it's uh, the the title of the book is uh the defense of the realm the authorized history of mi5 by christopher andrew um massive book but if you open right to the title page the page on the left side of the title page i think that's called the frontispiece Um, so there's this uh black and white drawing with uh you know you can see some uh, when you just like glance at it you can just see there's some kind of conflict situation there's a warrior uh looks like some kind of gladiator even Um, and across the bottom there's a banner that says The Hidden Hand and the uh, caption says MI5's self-image at the end of 1917 on a Christmas slash New Year card designed by its deputy head Eric Holt Wilson. Okay. It shows uh, a masked Britannia who is uh, impaling the loathsome figure of, subverge, of sub, subversion with her monogrammed trident before he can stab the British fighting man in the back and prevent him from achieving mankind's immortal victory. M-I-V, mankind's immortal victory, with the V uh, standing for the n- number five in M-I-5. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, across the top it says, from M-I from miv in five wishing you mankind's immortal victory in the new year 1918 so how fitting that uh, i'm that we're returning to this here almost exactly a hundred years later to the day um, as this is i'm recording this at this moment on new year's eve of 2019 and this was uh 1918 so what do they call this the cycle of time how it you know turns and comes back around and uh beneath the banner it says in french dieu et mon droit god and my right. i assume that that has something to do with uh royalty and um uh you know ideas of uh the relationship between the british monarch and god um yeah, and so there's these uh soldiers with tridents fighting this uh monster. It, it like it's a kind of strange looking hairy monster. You can't really see where where its face is. You can see one of it's got a hand that's holding a knife, it seems to be breathing smoke, but maybe the smoke is some kind of ghost and that you can see a couple of feet, but mostly it's just this kind of hairy blob. You can't really see a face and that's the the monster that the soldiers are fighting of, of subversion anyways that wasn't actually what i pulled the book out to uh to look at across from it in on the uh title page is uh you know the the title of the book and beneath the title there is this um line drawing of an eye and um you know, kind of running along the bottom edge of the eye, it says... uh, It says something in Latin that's a little bit too tiny, but I'll read the caption on the other page. It says, The security services all-seeing eye with a slightly unorthodox intra-war Latin motto, which was intended to mean security is the reward of unceasing vigilance. Vigilance, I presume, against evil. But anyways, this was the first uh, indication that I had that that image of the all-seeing eye was associated with uh, British intelligence, but the world of intelligence specifically. I was just talking about the five eyes intelligence community. The eyes are the, um, you know, the eyes of the intelligence community members The word espionage has roots, you know, with words for seeing the uh, espionage that has the spy part in it. You also can espy, is an old way of saying, you know, just seeing something. Um, Seeing. We could do a whole other episode on uh, vision. And seeing, uh, seeing, in the role of uh, light in uh, in reflection, in um, the visual perception of information. But you know, really, in in uh, the context of the intelligence community, it's a lot more. Um, uh, I don't know that there's a whole lot of esoteric thought that really necessarily goes into these kinds of symbols. Uh, I, I was just bringing it up to introduce this idea that this image of the all-seeing eye is has historically been associated with uh, in the intelligence the intelligence community, and I think that that is a super 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 interesting point that I would uh, love to learn a little bit more about someday about the relationship between. The British intelligence community, but specifically, I guess, as a function of the queen or the monarch's um, security services. Because this um, does form a much more um, clearly formed direct linkage to religion to religious ideas about the king as God's representative on earth In, in I think the previous episode the last episode right before this one I think was the one where I was talking with Corey about the esoteric deep state and I brought up the issue of Haitian voodoo and how within Haitian voodoo, there's this idea of the overlap between the um, visible political apparatus, the visible terrestrial government, and the celestial government, the government of God. And uh, someone on Reddit very insightfully pointed out to me that that's, you know, a very uh, ancient idea in, you know, more general Western Christian traditions and you know, going back beyond that into Judaism um, w- within the uh, not phenomenon within the uh, institution of monarchy Corey brought up this wonderful book called The King's Two Bodies which I purchased and it's like a much thicker and longer book than I was expecting so I'm hoping to read it but not yet um all right. So all of this was sort of commentary on the uh the eye in, in the, uh, th- this image of the eye in the triangle, the all-seeing eye, its relationship with the British intelligence community, but also um behind that a very long history reaching back I think into the at least the late middle ages of uh the image of the uh, uh, all-seeing eye as the eye of God I don't think intelligence communities use it necessarily that way or used it necessarily that way I think that um the intention seems clearly to be more about like an aspiration to be um all-seeing and all-knowing you know especially in that sort of kind of secret hidden way but really, originally it was a um, religious image that uh, it, it that was used to depict the uh, uh, the eye of God in the sense of like me- a metaphor for God's uh, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. God who sees all and knows all. So I didn't really um, draw out quite yet as much as I meant to about the word enlightenment and it's the relationship between enlightenment and information. Enlightenment and knowledge. And... One of the recent sources that I can think of off the top of my head that sort of started giving, giving me this impression that that was really uh, the way that, you know, these enlightened people were using the word enlightenment to refer to some kind of knowledge or information. One of the recent sources for that impression for me was, uh, again, a book that I read right at the beginning when I first started becoming interested in um, these sorts of ideas around, you know, 1999-2000 was the book um zen flesh zen bones and specifically the edition i don't know if it was translated by paul reps but anyways this it's a little book that includes translations of zen buddhist some short zen buddhist books um they they include you know some of the books include little stories about uh people becoming enlightened and this isn't something i had caught the first time that i read it but when i came back more recently to revisit it i noticed this pattern of um in the stories that the word you know to be enlightened some of them had you know little stories about people becoming enlightened and i got the sense that like they were using the term in this very um not a loose way. They were they were using the term in this. They were using the term in this way that kind of indicated that the person in the story had either learned something. They had some kind of realization, but not necessarily a big, spectacular, cosmic realization about you know the nature of the universe. Um, it could be something you know quite mundane. they became enlightened in the sense of like, you know, just learning something very simple that they didn't know before. And if you want to really dig deep into this, um, there's a very close relationship, as I think is, you know, quite well known between alchemy and uh, the birth of the british uh, royal society and the royal society if i understand correctly is really kind of the birthplace of the university system so there is a certain sense in which everybody who goes to university or is uh, part of a university is uh, a part of this ongoing project of enlightenment which started i suppose with the medieval you know magicians and alchemists but uh especially the british royal society which that has a super interesting history of some of the uh uh characters who helped uh found that i think um uh, francis bacon is one of the you know most prominent memorable people who comes to mind he wasn't directly involved but he was uh one of the direct inspirations for the Royal Society, it looks like. But there's this is a super interesting history that it's also worth uh, digging into if anyone's uh, really into it. But Bacon and the scientific method, you know, I think you can see the uh, um, lineage starting with, you know, certain, like, seeds of ideas and growing up into uh, the present day global project of... Uh, attaining enlightenment in the sense of just the quest for information and knowledge, the quest for knowledge. If you uh, had the inclination, you could um, find further roots for this, like, quest for knowledge in a mystical sense in uh, the Garden of Eden stories. So I'd like to circle back around now to the main topic of this uh, episode, which is... uh, trust started off as trust, the importance of trust in uh, intelligence sharing, the importance of trust in the world of intelligence. Then we kind of segued into this uh, meditation on the Illuminati and enlightenment. Now by way I suppose of coming back to the issue of trust, I'm looking at the moment at uh, a picture of the back of the U.S. dollar bill, which most famously has this uh, symbol on it—the Great Seal of the United States—which uh, people like to associate with uh, um, Illuminati mythology. In my episode about the um, about Madonna and the Illuminati, I br- uh, pointed out how she very prominently wore like uh, there was this jacket that she had with the uh eye in the triangle illuminati symbol on the back of it that was you know very prominently part of the uh, plot somehow but again it's this, this symbol this become really closely associated with illuminati mythology and um on the back of the dollar bill it's here the great seal with uh, the eye in the triangle and then right next to it in the center it says uh, in God we trust. I remember at some point digging into the history of this and finding it uh, unsatisfying. Maybe I'll revisit it and it will be interesting again Um, but I never really found the uh, official histories of why there's uh, an eye in a triangle on the back of the dollar bill and um, the words in God we trust on our money I mean that's another uh, subject that could really be um, opened up the role of trust and uh, the role of trust in economics and and the world of finance Um, this is just completely beyond my um, area of specialty in any way so all i can really do is just indicate that there's another way <clears throat> to think about trust and especially money as a symbol of value as an as a token that is exchanged between individuals or parties that's uh, an exchange of something valuable an exchange of of value of uh of buying power, of um, the power to achieve your goals, the power to get what you want, to obtain what you want. You need money to, to do that, to obtain the objects of your desire. I believe it's specifically the dollar, dollar bill, the, the paper money specifically represents gold. And I'm just kind of free associating here, but I really uh, do believe that the story about worshipping the golden calf in the book of Exodus actually does have some sort of economic um, undertones or, you know, significance to uh, what it meant in that context, you know, within that literary context. I think it really does have something to do with money. Um, And then we have our... He's not exactly a golden bull, but he is a uh, metal bull on Wall Street. You know, very famously is this symbol of uh, ancient, ancient, prehistoric symbol of masculinity and power. And that story in Exodus is, is uh, very, very importantly, I think, about trust. Moses has ascended up on the mountain to receive the Torah. And um, the people are left alone at the bottom of the mountain to wait for his return. He was among them. I think that there's you know some clear uh, parallels with Christian mythology about um, the uh, you know leader of the entire religion, you know, being present with the people, then going away and saying, "I'm going to come back. Wait for me." so moses is, has gone up the mountain to receive the torah and the people get restless they feel like he's not coming back you know this is this is how the story goes um in exodus they, they think that he's not coming back that he's been gone too long and um and so that's when they decide they need to uh, uh make the golden calf and worship the golden calf um so here we are, 2019 on the verge of 2020. We have our dollar bill that says on the back, In God We Trust. And, you know, kind of what I've teased out of this idea of trust in this episode is um, is that trust is about alliances. Trust is about specifically trusting that someone is not going to hurt you that they're your friend not your enemy and as i you know pointed out in the context of the uh uh international intelligence sharing you know trust isn't necessarily about just liking someone or trusting their intentions it's really about can i trust that you um are trustworthy you know can i n- not not trust but can i conclude based you know on an analysis of you know who you are and your practices can i trust that you are a can i conclude that you're a trustworthy person who can carry the responsibility of um, sharing secrets with me. Not necessarily just sharing secrets, but sharing secrets as an expression of allowing myself to be vulnerable in your presence. Opening, letting down my security to you. Letting down my... uh, letting down my, you know, barriers and walls and, um, the whole apparatus that I've put up to protect myself. If, can I open that up, let, let it down to let you in and trust that if I share, you know, my vulnerability with you, you won't turn around and use, um, that is a chance to hurt me that's kind of the you know the the ideas that we're teasing out here about uh, uh trust and so now i feel like we come to this question of what does it mean what does this mean in god we trust and to be very clear it's this is our dollar bill this is our um Golden calf at the uh, foot of the mountain in some kind of potential metaphorical sense, I don't know. Um, it's also coming to me that like, gold is uh, plays an important role in the Torah in the uh, <sighs> treasures in the Jewish temple were also made of gold. I've recently been reading about how those treasures were sacked by the Romans, you know, when um, Titus destroyed the Jewish temple in the year 70. And they were um, taken to Rome and deposited in um, a temple there called the Temple of Peace, which was destroyed in a fire like a hundred years later. Um, Who knows what happened to the uh, treasures of the Jewish temple after that? That's a super interesting question. Um, Most famously, there is a uh, arch which uh, shows, like has carvings depicting the uh, Roman soldiers returning from battle, carrying the golden uh, um, treasures of the Jewish temple. And it does not show uh, the Ark of the Covenant among those treasures so there's this big question of where the ark is now Uh, the ark being the uh, repository of the Torah which I'm now uh, you know kind of playing around with this uh, moment of the reception of the Torah at Mount Sinai as Moses is up on the mountain so that that Torah he's receiving is ultimately going to be deposited in the uh, ark of the Covenant, which is now missing Just to put it out there, I think you can find the Ark of the Covenant in literally any um, synagogue around the world. And uh, at this point, most motels around the United States still have at least, you know, a translation in the bedside table. The idea ultimately, I think, is the Torah is supposed to... um, enter into your heart and your heart you know can be the ark of the covenant covenant being the alliance agreement between uh humans and god this uh the contract this uh, um, uh this covenant this contract this this you know relationship agreement which throughout the torah is uh uh, personified as a, as a marriage contract between Israel and God, that contract, that covenant can enter into you and dwell in your heart as its own ark of the covenant. And I, like, I don't know, I'm kind of getting into this sort of what's the word I'm looking for? A playful, um, Improvisational space right now, where I'm you know feeling out and testing the edges of uh, uh, of some metaphorical room, looking for the light switch maybe, um, because I do feel like this has uh, an important and kind of essential connection with enlightenment, um, the light in your heart as the trust trust God has placed in you and in me and in everybody which we uh, are asked to return so in the previous episodes I've talked I feel like quite a bit about this uh, issue of trust in the Hebrew Bible and what it has to do with um, the probably you know fundamental question of religion, of uh, uh, Hebrew scripture, the question of evil, the question of why do uh, bad things happen to good people? Why is there evil in the world if God is good? So that's part of it too. That's part of trust. That's part of faith. That's part of um, the call, you know, is to, is you know, just to have a willingness to give God the benefit of the doubt to say there's more than I understand going on here but when I don't understand I'm going to you know trust that there's an explanation and it's not that God hates me it's not that God is evil and I don't know what it is it's beyond me right now but I trust that it's there i feel like we're starting to wind down a little bit but um there's just two more things i want to touch on quickly before we call it a day or a year one of them is this wonderful article cory cory was i was actually kind of surprised how interested he was in it uh but we were both super into this article called um how Krishna protects his devotees. If you actually search Google for "Krishna protects devotees," there's a lot more on the subject. Which I would, I wish I had time to uh, go through. There's YouTube videos. There's um, lots of other articles. I actually can't find the article right now, but it was it was a, a collection of um, quotes from Hindu scripture, and and you know. Excerpts, long, longer passages, and then a discussion of them, and uh, a discussion of just, you know, the problem of, uh, um, you know, bad things happening to good people. And I remember the, uh, uh, one of the, you know, part of the core of the argument was that, you know, pointing out how there were some, you know, there are stories of uh, Krishna's friends in um, the Mahabharata. You know some of the most important figures of uh Hindu mythology and in their life stories you know they were Krishna's uh allies they were people who had um close relationships with him they were uh you know kind of members of his extended family in a sense and um horrible horrible things still happened to them so uh you know the author was using this as an illustration that, that just because a person is uh a devotee of krishna and krishna is his protector or her protector doesn't mean that nothing bad is ever going to happen what it means is that um krishna won't allow his devotees to come to utter ruin he won't allow them to be destroyed and in the end you know the uh their destiny in the afterlife is going to be very happy so but his protection you know protecting his devotees doesn't mean you you know aren't going to have to struggle for money or um see here's here's money again, but uh um, or experience interpersonal conflicts or whatever problems it is large and small that people have as i'm speaking these words all of australia is on fire and um you know I'm, I'm very concerned for uh for their safety but also um for the whole planet you know with this being a uh you know the beginning of climate disaster um you know krishna's protection doesn't mean you know there won't be bad times but um but i suppose you know and all of this can be very easily translated i think into the jewish scriptures with uh, god as the protector of israel his people and um why you know so many terrible things have happened to the uh, to the jews you know throughout history even and especially you know in modernity you know some of the worst tragedies you know it doesn't mean God's protection it it doesn't mean the uh, uh, contract with Israel has been annulled it doesn't mean the um, relationship between God and Israel has been broken but we are called to you know have faith that our story has a happy ending the, the story of the Jewish people has a happy ending and I hope the story of all people and the planet our mother has a happy ending. But where I'm trying to go with this is is you know back to the uh question of trust and like trusting God doesn't mean that you trust nothing bads ever going to happen because obviously um if that were true you know certainly trust would come really easy. That's the whole uh you know opening argument of the book of job that uh it's really easy to trust god if nothing bad ever happens but uh but that's not the case so then what is so you know then what is the meaning of trusting god if like as i've established in this uh uh episode you know talking this out that trust is about trusting that someone isn't going to hurt you this this article that cory and i were really really into that i can't find at the moment was about uh you know Krishna protecting his devotees, and um, the uh, the meaning of Krishna's of God's protection is that uh, is that God doesn't allow his devotees to become utterly destroyed. This, and I'm adding, you know, that the story has a happy ending. But I want to return now to this book, um, which I mentioned at the very beginning, the Code of Trust. An American Counterintelligence Experts' Five Rules to Lead and Succeed. This is by Robin Dreek, D-R-E-E-K-E. Now, as I mentioned, Robin Dreek is or was a, uh, um officer with the FBI, and their interest, as I understand it from... Um, you know, my introductory familiarity with his writings is they're interested in how they forge relationships of trust with potential um, intelligence assets. For example, in the recruitment, in the process of, you know, trying to recruit someone from a hostile nation to... You know form a an alliance with you and cooperate and work to help you so that's where i think um the fbi and the kind of trust that um robin drake was uh working on you know the science of 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 building trusting relationships but that being said there's some you know one of the things that i love most about um Robin's, you know, system, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the science or art of trust that, that, uh, he established, you know, as a product of, um, decades of both, you know, real life experience and, uh, research was, um, the very, very, you know, beginning foundation right at the outset, he says, like, the first thing you have to do, uh, to establish this relationship of trust is to actually legitimately be trustworthy. I love that. I love that 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 is where it starts, that it's not um, about manipulating people to cooperate with you. It's not like how can I make this person trust me you know, while keeping open my options about whether I'm going to fuck them over someday or not. No, I see that I've been talking for a very long time, so um, so I'll just... you know, I, I strongly recommend this book. I think it's wonderful if you find this subject interesting like I do in a sort of philosophical sense, even the, the issue of trust. But it also uh, is a book that kind of bridges the, uh, the practical and the philosophical, uh, you know, leaving, with, leaving it with really specific uh, uh, techniques and strategies for building relationships of trust. And I, which I think is like, uh, you know, I think, I think by now it should be obvious. I think that that's super interesting in uh, a sort of um, mystical context. Let's call it, let's call it a yogic context. Yoga, uh, as you may or may know, is from a, um, the Sanskrit word, which means like to join together. Um, the, Our English word, well, it's now English, the English word religion uh, also comes from the same roots it's uh to uh like tie back together is uh uh where the, what the word uh uh ultimately means um the root of it is about rejoining you know pieces of uh i mean specifically god and and humans but just more more generally like piece, uh, fragments of the cosmos that have been um broken apart so, by way of wrapping it up, I just want to return to this idea uh that uh, Robin Drake emphasizes in his uh in his writings in his uh system of uh, of establishing trust that what it's about uh, and that the ultimate um task for the for the uh people involved is uh uh the need to uh focus on the other person or partner in the relationship uh, and that you establish trust in a trusting relationship by showing a, a legitimate interest in um, the other person, the other party, wanting to know, you know, who they are, what, they, what their needs are, their desires or interests, and so on, and showing that you care about that. That you can that you, just that you care about the the other person i mean I really think that it really that's really all it comes down to because uh back within the intelligence context people you know as frequently point out when writing about intelligence liaison specifically that um these organizations these uh, uh like intelligence agencies are uh their mission is to protect the uh um the nation and and to be you know looking after their own nation's um interests and it's really interesting because it's reminding me now of something one of my early buddhist teachers told me um uh, kempo from the uh, Zokchen lineage he was uh saying that like the emphasis within buddhism is on generosity service to others looking out for the interests of everyone other than yourself and you know i had once i think brought up some kind of counter argument like you know, how do you make sure you're not getting exploited how do you um like surely someone needs to be looking out for my interests and his answer was like oh don't worry you're going to look out for your interests you know <laughs> we're just trying to get you to you know b- open that up to start thinking about you know um develop the new skill of uh also thinking about other people ultimately i think that these relationships with god these um, behaviors that the religions are supposed to be um i suppose training you know the devotees in it's ultimately not really a going to be about god it's god is is this you know, symbol of, I mean, also a reality and a symbol, but in addition to being a reality, also just like a symbol of the one being that you can't bully, that you can't overpower, you can't strong arm God into serving you. So it kind of forces you to build an alternative to that in how you might relate to another being that you can't bully and you can't, you know, at least at some point turn into your servant so that you can start to develop, you know, the skills needed to genuinely love someone, to genuinely trust someone, to genuinely form relationships that aren't about mutual exploitation. But that being said, at the same time, there is something very special about the personal relationship with God and a relationship of trust that i believe is kind of essential in the um exodus story that moment of um the receipt of the torah in the desert happens in between egypt and israel the promised land egypt as the place of slavery and um the promised land is the place of liberation i don't know perhaps the whole journey in between egypt and the promised land was the process of liberation but uh i'm I'm interpreting here that moment of the receipt of the torah as you know having something to do with trust and the development of a first of all the forging of an alliance of some kind of relationship of 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 non-harming of non-violence of uh of being allies being allied but i but i'm Saying that, I think that um, developing—I'm I'm suggesting perhaps that developing that relationship of trust with God is one of the early, first, initial stages that's necessary to bring us all out of this world of uh, good and evil, all mixed up together, and um, hardship and slavery, or hardship and hardship and um, and pain to that place that we want to get to you know i'm just reading we'll just read israel the promised land as just like the symbol of like that place that you want to go to and you can fill the concepts of that idea with whatever it is that makes people happy that's the place where we all want to go we're, we're all trying to go and so i think that um you know kind of the bottom line then coming out of all of this is uh in order to get there we're going to have to uh develop these skills of learning how to trust and learning how to build trusting mutual relationships of mutual trust you know is the the beginning of the uh journey of what's going to bring us all there Eight zero eight four one nine eight and